TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Better Living, a show about people and organizations that make an impact around Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm your host, Chris Arnold of 105.3 The Fan. Thank you all for joining me. And this morning we have a very special guest to start the show off. Her name is Vonda Bryant. Vonda, how you been? I'm doing pretty good today. I just take one day at a time, and thank y'all for having me, and uh, I'm excited to be on. Well, I want people to know all about you because you and I have been in contact, like online, and you've sent me some emails in the past. We've corresponded for years, and it's about time I had you on the show because people are really, really aware of mental wellness, mental health, and especially Suicide, present, suicide prevention, which is what you you specialize in. Yes, uh, and I have been very busy um, since the pandemic started. So it's not a day that goes by. I don't get a message on uh, social media or email or a phone call that someone needs help. So can I call you a QPR suicide prevention instructor? And can you tell everybody what that is in, t- in detail? Sure. QPR stands for Question, Persuade, Refer. And it is a two-hour training in how to teach someone how to recognize the signs of someone being in crisis or suicidal, talk and listen to them in a non-judgmental way, which is very important, because if you are trying to help someone who is in crisis or suicidal and you're judgmental, like, you know, how can you be, um, have, how, how can you have depression or how can you be suicidal or putting us down? We're going to shut down. Also, it teaches you how to help someone to get the help they need. So it is very important when I train people that they know the resources in their area, because when someone is in crisis or suicidal, you might only have a few minutes to get that person help. So it is very, very important that you know those resources. And when you get finished with the um, two-hour training, which I do online and I do it in person as well, you get a certificate that lasts for three years. You are a certified gatekeeper, which means you can save someone's life. You'll recognize the signs. You get that spider sense. You know what Mm -hmm. to do. And then you also get a QPR booklet in PDF form and a, a resource card, which I always urge everyone that I have trained Print out that resource card and make sure you write down the resources in your area, whether it's a crisis mobile unit, the CIT officers, crisis intervention team police officers that help us when we're in crisis. So, you know, I just want people to realize that suicide is everyone's business and anyone can prevent the tragedy of a suicide. You do not have to be a professional to do so. We're talking with Fonda Bryant. She is not only a mental health first aid instructor, but she's also a suicide prevention instructor. And you've been saving lots of lives nationwide. You're based out of Charlotte, North Carolina, but you and I go way back because you were concerned about a particular Dallas Cowboy player. I'm not going to say his name now, but you saw signs from afar that he was having problems mentally where a lot of people were wondering about this player. This is going back 10 years ago at least. Um, where you were, you thought he was having some issues when a lot of people just thought um, he just, you know, uh, wasn't fitting the, the mode of a professional football player. Yes, and, you know, that's something I appreciate you saying that is 
You know, a lot of times when people see behavior, especially among uh, professional athletes, even college athletes, they automatically just think, oh, they're just crazy mm-hmm. or they're um, they're not appreciative for being able to make that kind of money or doing what they love. But people just don't realize that mental health a lot of times goes way back long before they became professional athletes, college athletes, or even high school athletes. Um, you know, it's the stats say by the time a child is 14, 50% of them are dealing with a mental health condition. By the time they're 24, it's 75%. And uh-huh. when young men especially are playing sports or thrust into being a good athlete, a lot of times their behavior is overlooked. They could be dealing with a mental health condition, you know, getting in trouble in school, maybe mm-hmm. self-medicating, but they overlook that because they're a great athletes. Oh, there's nothing wrong with them. That's just boys being boys. So with this particular Dallas Cowboy um, player, when everybody was sitting up making fun of the stuff that he did, and it was very well publicized. Yeah, it was, it was stuff it was, that you wouldn't think a professional football player would do. It was like, wait a minute, there's no, it's those logical le- reasons for him to be quote-unquote acting out or doing things that are like, wait a minute, you know, he's he's a grown man with big money. Yes, but that has nothing to do with it because he was struggling. And like I said, it doesn't come up overnight. I think he had been struggling for a long time. So when I was reading where people were making fun of him and calling him crazy, it really upset me because that's part of the problem too, the stigma that surrounds mental health. Mm-hmm. The stigma that surrounds it. And so when people were laughing and picking on him and saying ugly things, I knew that that was mental health. Straight, I, I knew right off the bat. I said, that is mental health. And the thing is, is that I tell people all the time, I have this great friend of mine who is a he is a expert in trauma. And I want people to think about these two questions. I want you to think about this. He taught me, he said, we got to quit asking what is wrong with you which that's what a lot of people said when this athlete got in trouble. Mm -hmm. What is wrong with you? We got to start asking what happened to you. Right. We got to start asking what happened because if you peel back those layers, something happened, something happened. He was dealing with a mental health condition. And I tell people all the time, if you do not take care of your mental health, it will not take care of you. Death is the ultimate, but there are other things poor decisions, bad judgment, incarceration, which can come from self-medicating. And self-medicating can take all kinds of forms, not just drugs and alcohol, but pornography, Mm -hmm. sex, Mm -hmm. gambling, eating, shopping, working out excessively. It can take on all different forms. So when when people look at, especially professional athletes, and like, oh, what's wrong with you? You got money, you got fame. I look at them totally different when something out of character happens because I know more likely than not they were dealing with a mental health condition that was never treated, and it could go all the way back to when they were a child. And fortunately for him, uh, he's no longer in the league, and his life is not exactly going the way it should. And this is like 10 years ago. This is why, why I've always kind of kept in touch with you, Fonda, because you saw something that a lot of people weren't seeing, and so – that made my spidey senses go off. You mentioned the spidey senses. It's like, okay, I'm going to pay attention to different people and how they're dealing with mental issues. And then let's come full circle to right now. The Dallas Cowboys' current quarterback, Dak Prescott, is a mental wellness advocate. He went through some stress situations. In fact, he lost his own brother to suicide. Can you talk about some things. I don't know if you've even met Dak yet or had a correspondence with him, but can you talk about what you've observed about how Dak is handling things and how he's a good advocate for uh, mental wellness? Well, you know, like I said with Dak, and you know I'm a big Dallas Cowboy fan, and that's how you and I became connected. And I look at Dak as someone, again, who uh, just because they look big, strong, they have money, they have everything going for themselves, doesn't mean we can't struggle. Mm -hmm. And I think that struggle came further back than, like I said, now, because it can manifest itself. So when his uh, brother died by suicide, before they even announced what he had died from, I knew it was suicide because the media doesn't come straight out. They'll report maybe a murder-suicide or something like that. But the media is leery to report a suicide because it's a myth that says if we talk about suicide, people will do it. That's not true. 
if we talk about it, we can stop it. And then you also have to bring culture into play. Mm -hmm. Because with me being African-American, I know Dak had a white mom, but at the end of the day, we're African-Americans. And we have been taught, pray about it. Don't claim it. Give it to God. It's a sign of weakness. And that mentality is killing us. So with Dak's brother, you had a man, you had a black man, and you had a man who was living in the shadows of his brother who was on the most popular team on the planet. And that can be a lot. And truth probably be told, he was probably struggling with depression. Mm -hmm. 90% of people who die by suicide have a treatable mental health condition, and depression is the number one disease that can cause you to take your own life. So when his brother died, it really hurt me. I take when somebody dies by suicide very personal because I know it's preventable. And people, the thing with suicide also is, unlike murder, unlike a car death, natural causes, it leaves behind so many questions. Why didn't I know? Why didn't they come to me? Why didn't I see those signs? And a lot of times while we don't come to people, and I'm a 26-year suicide survivor myself, Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why we don't come to people is that fear of being judged. We don't want to come. And I I can only imagine how he felt that tremendous pain that we feel in that moment. We don't want to die, but that pain in that moment is unbearable. And it doesn't just affect us in our head. It affects our entire body. But if someone will come along and say, hey, let me help you get help. I'm here for you. We can get through this. You're not alone. I will go with you to get help. You can get better. You can recover. You can save a life. So I know with Dak, he's hurting. And he always will, because I just lost someone to suicide myself. Pierre. And the pain, the pain stings your heart. Mm-hmm. It stings your heart. But at the same token, it just wanted to, it, when, when the young man who I love passed away by suicide four weeks ago, it just fueled me to do even more. So I know that's how Dak feels. He wants to do more, to stop suicide, like the pain he's feeling with his brother. And I was so sorry that he lost his brother. I'm so sorry that anyone loses someone to suicide. But I hope one of these days I can meet Dak and he and I can work together to stop suicide. Because, you know, in, a, in, in black culture, people say, oh, black people don't take their own lives. That's a lie. We die every four and a half hours mm. to suicide. So we just got to do better and we got to work together. There's another Dallas Cowboy wide receiver, Michael Gallup, who also lost his brother to suicide a couple of years ago while he was playing for the Dallas Cowboys. And you mentioned um, your young friend, Pierre. I know that had to be a shocker for you, because especially because this is what you do you, you for a living. You speak to people and you speak out, and it's a passion of yours. Uh, I don't want to get too personal, but what were the circumstances? And I know it was so painful for you. Oh, yeah. Um Matter of fact, uh, I can't believe it's it's already it's been a month. It's already been a month almost. And mm-hmm. I was driving here in Charlotte, going to the grocery store. My son was out of town, and he called me and he said, "Mom, I got something to tell you." And I was like, "What is it?" And the first thing I said was, "Did you get somebody pregnant?" You know, I just, <laughs> no, yeah. the first thing that came right. Out of my head. I'm not ready to be another grand, you know, have another Mm -hmm. grandchild. So he said, no. And he said, "Um, mom, I don't know how to tell you this. He said, Pierre's dead. And he said, he died by suicide. And I said, what? And I just started screaming and I was driving and I had to pull over and I pulled over into this apartment complex and I just screamed and I was beating on the steering wheel. And I said, this, this, this can't be happening. This, this can't be happening. And I left home at a quarter to seven and I didn't get back home until after 10 o'clock because I I just couldn't move. I I just could not move. Pierre was such a wonderful young man. He, him and my son played football together at Wake Forest. Uh, Pierre was from Georgia. He was a year younger than my son. So he was 37 and um, he uh, worked, as a sheriff's deputy when he first finished playing football at Wake Forest and graduating. Then he went back down to um, Georgia. He uh, got his master's 
He was married, had two children. He had oh, a son no. before. Yeah, he had a son before he finished college, and he's uh, 15 and lives up here. But he had another child with his wife. My son was the best man at his wedding, and four weeks ago, my son was carrying his casket to his son's resting place. So it's it's been very hard. My heart stings, and not only that, I beat myself up a little bit because I'm like, why didn't I reach out to him? Why didn't I call him? And I went back through the text messages because I never get rid of any of my text messages. And I saw the last text message I sent him and he sent to me was for New Year's. And I said, Happy New Year. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love y'all guys. And something else I said. And he sent me back a message and said, Happy New Year. I love you too. So I kind of beat myself up because I'm such a stickler with telling people to check on others. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I dropped the ball. No, I don't feel that way. And in fact, I understand how you might feel, but Fonda, over the years, you have saved so many lives, but I know exactly how you feel. Your heart hurts, especially because mm-hmm. of someone you're so close to for years. We're talking with Fonda Bryant. She is a mental health first aid instructor, but also a suicide prevention instructor. You mentioned you're a 26-year suicide survivor. Who saved your life? Can you talk about where you were and how you were able to fight through this, because there are some people who may be listening right now who may feel like they're on the verge. Well, I want everybody to know if you feel that way. First off, you're never alone. It's always help out here. And I had a hero who saved my life. Um, I sit on the state board of NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. There's a NAMI in every state, NAMI Texas. Mm -hmm. Then we break down to affiliates, NAMI Dallas, NAMI Charlotte. So um, 26 years ago, I was a pharmacist tech at a hospital here in um, Charlotte and thought I was doing pretty good. You know, we had a a nice place to live. My son was doing good in school. He was 12. And, you know, I thought everything was going okay, but it wasn't. At 35, depression reared its ugly head. And when it did, it came in with a vengeance. Uh, You know, I tell people all the time to look out for some of the signs, and I'll just share a little bit of some of my signs that I was dealing with. Sure. First off, I was extremely tired. Not just tired, like, hey, I had a long day at work, I'm tired. This was debilitating tired. It felt like I was walking in molasses. And if any of y'all are really Southern and had molasses, you know how to make molasses. Are. Oh, you know yeah. how thick they are. They'll mm-hmm. break up a biscuit in a minute. <laughs> so that's how tired I was. Like every movement I made took great energy. They, it just took great energy. So that was one of the signs. Uh, I was, I, all I wanted to do was go to sleep. I just wanted to go to sleep. That's all I wanted to do. I wasn't eating. I uh, started isolating myself. And I take great pride in my appearance. And my appearance had changed greatly because I didn't have enough energy. I just had enough energy to take a shower, not put on makeup, not put a lot of effort into my hair, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So, um, I, you know, I, I went through where I went to work and finally people started noticing something was wrong. So eventually um, my job gave me time off where I went to therapy. But you have to be humble and you have to be wanting help. And at the time, I still thought nothing was wrong with me. But unfortunately, things started getting worse. And on Valentine's Day, 1995, a day of love where people are giving flowers and candy and jewelry, I was planning my suicide. Oh, no. And my apartment was immaculate. My son was at school. And I do not drink, never done drugs, but I had a plan. But before I implemented that plan, I reached out to a hero. As I said, I sit on the state board of NAMI. And a couple of years ago, we had a walk. And our theme was all heroes don't wear capes. And this is a hero that does not wear a cape. My Aunt Spanky, my Aunt Kelly. I call her Spanky. She calls me Tweety. When we're together, it's not Fonda and Kelly. It's Spanky and Tweety. We grew up together three years apart. And and remember what I told you earlier about not being judgmental? Mm -hmm. I went to someone who I felt like wouldn't judge me, who would understand. And so I called her. And I told her, I said, um, you can have my shoes. And I don't remember, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't remember much more about the conversation. So we hung up. She called me back. She said, are you going to kill yourself? And I told her, yes. Now, in the black culture again, 
that she could have said, well, you know what? Tweety's just having a bad day. She's just wanting attention. And I hear that a lot when I'm helping people of color. And I tell people, if that's the kind of attention people want, you give it to them because you don't know if they're going to take their own life or not. That's right. So my aunt went into hero mode. And later that afternoon, I wasn't able to implement my plan because I didn't want my son to be there. And so the police came, a police officer came. He asked me, was I fond of Bryant? And I said, yes. He said, I came to take you to a mental health facility. I said, no, you did not. I went up the stairs to my bedroom. He went up right behind me. And when we got up there, Wesley, my son, came up behind me some kind of way. And things started getting uh, heated. And when he put his hands, he put his hand on my shoulder, I scratched him. And when I scratched him, he threw me in handcuffs. He shook me really hard, threw me in handcuffs, and took me out. The only thing that saved me from getting hurt that day was my son was there. And he said, Mom, please calm down. You need to get help. So that was probably one of the worst days of my life. It was very traumatic. You know, I was taken out outside. My aunt was there, and I was yelling at her and screaming. My neighbors were outside. They had no idea what was going on. And I was handcuffed and taken to a mental health facility where I stayed a week. And while I was out there, I learned I was diagnosed with clinical depression. But you know one of the most poignant things that happened while I was out there? What was that? I called my mother, and she knew I was in the psychiatric hospital. She was very mad at my Aunt Spanky. My grandmother was mad at her. And that's what I tell people. My aunt did the ultimate to save my life. And, and you know, sometimes people don't want to do that. So I always tell people, you got two choices when we're in crisis or suicidal. You can help us. And, yeah, we might be mad at you. We might not speak to you ever again. But we're alive not to do that. And eventually, we'll get over it. Mm-hmm. Or you can do nothing, and you can run the risk of going to a funeral. And when I called my mother, you know, at first off, my mom lived in Savannah, Georgia. She was remarried and lived in Savannah. Now, if I would have had a heart attack or a stroke, she would have been on the first thing smoking to North Carolina to see me. But because it was mental health, because it was a suicide attempt, she didn't come. And when I talked to her on the phone, first thing she said was, you just need to be stronger, which is the rally cry for people of color. Mm -hmm. We got to do better. Mm -hmm. We have got to do better. So when I went through that, I realized, I said, you know something? I I told him when I left, I said, I'm not going to be a person in and out of a mental health facility. I refused that. And the next thing I said was, I got to turn around and help people like me because there is so many people out here like me who need help. And because of society making us ashamed, they suffer in silence. Wow. That's, that's one heck of a story. And by the way, we're talking with Fonda Bryant. She is a mental health first aid instructor, but more importantly, a suicide prevention instructor. And your story is so profound. I I just wonder because you've been so keenly aware of this and so diligent about helping others for the last 26 years or so. Can you talk about how the perception of mental health and suicide has changed? It seems like people understand more now, and I don't know what triggered it, but I think more people understand it as opposed to, you know, maybe just 10 years ago. Yes, we're getting better, but we need to be, we need to do even more because the thing is, this is how I kind of look at it. When a celebrity, famous person comes out and they say, hey, I'm dealing with a mental health condition, or we have a celebrity who dies by suicide, society acts like they've never heard of mental health or suicide a day in their life until a celebrity comes out. Mm-hmm. We, you know, people with organizations, uh, advocates, we've been working for years. Now, Chris, I will tell you, I think it's great that we're, we're doing better with mental health, but here's the disconnect. We have to realize that mental health affects everyone. Right. People get shocked when they see, like, Simone Biles or Naomi Osaka comes out. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, my God, I can't believe they have a mental health condition. People need to realize mental health doesn't discriminate. Yes. It doesn't care if you got $5 million in the bank or $5 in the bank. And that's where the disconnect is. Society has a lot of empathy and compassion for celebrities. Now, I do see some ugly stuff sometimes with celebrities. They'll sit up and say, well, y'all have money. How can you be depressed? Mm-hmm. How can you, you know, you're, you're famous. But at the end of the day, people, society has more empathy and compassion for celebrities 
than they do the everyday person. Like I think I saw where they said with um, Simone Biles. Yeah, about, you know, at the Olympics. To, yeah, and going to the coaches and letting them know how they would look at her. Well, I'm going to tell you something. You, We're protected. People with mental health issues are protected under the ADA. And we're supposed to get the same treatment as someone with a, dis- a physical disability. Tell you what, let me, when I used to work for a radio station and I was administrative assistant, let me have called in and said, hey, you know what? I can't come in today because my depression is kicking my butt and I can't even get up out of this bed to take a shower. I probably would have lost my job. Mm -hmm. So you know what people with mental health issues have to do with us everyday people when we're struggling? Some companies are now starting to recognize mental health Mm -hmm. and giving you mental wellness days. But it's still a lot that are not. So you know what people do with mental health issues to everyday person? We lie. We call in and say we use a physical condition. Well, you know, my stomach's upset today. I have a sore throat. I have flu. I can't come in. Because we know if we sit up and tell the real reason, hey, I can't. My depression is kicking my butt. I'm dealing with anxiety. I'm dealing with bipolar. They're not going to have that same empathy and compassion for us. And that's what we need. And that's what a gap needs to be bridged between the famous and the not famous. We need to work together to show mental health does not care who we are. When I was reading what Dak was saying when he was going through depression, Mm -hmm. guess what? We deal with the same thing. Mm -hmm. We deal with the same thing. But it's something about sometimes with celebrities and the famous. They think, okay, Fonda has depression and anxiety like me, but she might be crazy. I'm not crazy. And that's where that line in the sand is Mm -hmm. drawn and crazy is right in the middle of it. We need to erase that line. Dak and I need to cross that line and say, hey, Fonda deals with the same thing I do. I'm just at a higher level of an athlete. We're the same. And I think until that changes, we're still going to have that big chunk of stigma that is in the way and keeping people from realizing that mental health affects everybody. And, you know, you said that so well. There's so many people, and like you said, that have depression and people may assume that they're crazy or Mm -hmm. assume that they're weaker than someone else or they just need to be strong or they need to just pray about it. I know that the month of May was set aside for Mental Health Awareness Month. And I think a lot of people were, were becoming more aware. And I also think that uh, in a lot of different corporations, like you said, they do allow for mental health days nowadays. Some of them, not all of them. More of them should. In fact, all of them should. But can we yeah. also talk about, I think this pandemic probably made people more aware of it because a lot of people weren't handling either working from home, being downsized, or being furloughed, or dealing with working around their kids or working around their significant other and it, and increase the stresses in their life. Can you talk about what you've noticed over the last half a year and a half with different people dealing with mental depression and possible suicide? Oh man, I have been, I've been swamped. I mean, it's like every day I woke up just a couple of weeks ago and I got an email and on the subject line, it just said, help. It just said, help. You know, it's like every single day someone's reaching out because the thing is, people are starting to realize what we as advocates and organizations have known. Like I said before, mental health affects everyone. You might not have a physical you might not have the same as I do, like the clinical depression where I'm taking medication and things like that. You might have seasonal where if we have a couple of days of, of cloudiness, you you know, you can't deal with that. Or just being put in a different environment now where you used to go to work and see people and talk to people and get outside and go to lunch. Now you're at home with your children all day and you're trying to balance them being online with school and you taking care of your household with your husband. It's a lot. And we noticed from looking at the stats that alcoholism was up, mm-hmm. uh, substance abuse was up, mm-hmm. domestic violence was up. Mm-hmm. All of that is because, like I said, it's not normal. It wasn't natural for us to all of a sudden be shut-ins, where everybody was shut in and, and your whole uh, interaction with people was online. So that took a toll. And then the children being isolated, not being with their friends. And this is something because I speak and do a lot in the school system here. You have children that are in terrible environments, and the only escape that they had was coming to school. 
you know, being mm-hmm. around people, not being in that situation. So this pandemic has opened so many doors. It's really ripped the Band-Aid off of stuff that we've already been saying, the substance abuse, alcoholism, domestic violence, all of this stuff has been magnified even more with this pandemic. And I'm going to tell you something else, too. Another uh, underlying issue is we are not a kind society. We are a mean society. Oh, boy, especially on social media. There's a lot of trolls out there, a lot of angry people. It is. And, you know, what's going on now? Should I take the vaccine? I'm not taking the vaccine. I'm not wearing a mask. I'm going to wear a mask. You know, I saw a report the other day on television where they said that where it used to be um, school board meetings were humdrum and mundane. Now you got people breaking out in fights. Yeah, on airlines. On airlines, you know, and it's just. That's that stress. You're sitting tight on a plane and you can get hit for something you're not even part of. So we have turned into a very mean society. We have no natural affection. You throw that in as well. You, you know what? All of that in. You know what? You're, you're so right about it. Again, everything is divisive, and that's a shame because, you know, you would think people become more understanding or have more empathy, but that's not the case exactly right now. Can you also talk about the word I was looking for was I think suicide and mental wellness was stigmatized. There was a stigma associated with it. Oh, you have mm-hmm. to see a doctor. There must be something wrong with you. You mentioned the celebrities and people were paying attention to them and maybe showing a lot of sympathy for them. But in the case with some of the athletes, and let's go back to Simone Biles in particular, when she mentioned her mental wellness and her mental health in the middle of the Olympics, there were a lot of people who were extremely judgmental of her thinking mm-hmm. that she was weak and not strong and what kind of athlete could she be and how could she let her team down. And then I dig it. I did the deeper dive. I'm, you probably follow this story so well yourself because this is what you do. But I did a deeper dive and found out that there were several gymnasts who suffer from something called the twisties. Have you heard yeah. about that? Let me, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, let me explain that to some people and then you can add on to this. It was actually dangerous for her to try to perform those amazing stunts that she does and land on her feet if she wasn't mentally right. The twisties, and this has been going on with gymnasts for for decades now. That's how they describe this feeling. That's when they're doing a somersault or they're spinning in the air, and because they went into the whole thing with a lot of stress on their mind, they weren't focused the way they needed to be, they couldn't tell up from down. And a lot of them injured themselves. One of them paralyzed themselves. This is years back. Paralyzed herself. Another guy, uh, you know, he broke his leg. They, they destroyed their knees. It's very dangerous to do those extremely difficult stunts that they do if their minds weren't right. And I read that, and I definitely, you know, I haven't been an athlete. I'm athletic, but haven't been an athlete. And I always tell people that mind and body are one. Mm-hmm. If your mind is not right, you're not going to be able to perform. That's just how it is. And people don't believe that. Just at any high level, at any level, if your mind, you know, if if your mind is not right, if you're not mentally well, it is going to affect you physically. It is going to affect you physically. So that's why I said I was not I was not surprised with what she came out. Mm-hmm. And that goes back again, Chris, to how many people are ignorant to mental health. Right. They just feel like, hey, mental health is something totally different. Your body is one thing. Your mind is another. No, it's not. Because when depression is kicking my butt, I can't take off my head and sit it on the counter like a football helmet. Right. And say, hey, I'm, I'm going to wait to subside. It goes together. And and keep talking about athletes. The young man that I helped out in uh, Utah. I was it, just about to go there. Let <laughs> me set you up because this is okay. so perfect. We're on the same page. Fonda, you made national news when you reached out on Twitter to a safety who plays for Brigham Young. He did not know you, but you saw something about him that wasn't quite right. You saved his life. I saw the TV story. Can you fill in the blanks? Because he is still playing football, and you wound up going out to uh, Utah to actually speak to the to the, the entire team. Yes. Uh, this young man was um, – well, I have to set the background a little bit. Yes, because please do. First off, 
this young man uh, did not know him. Only reason why I followed BYU, because I don't know too many people that do, unless you you went there, you're a fan. Um, I, I, I was a friend of one of the coaches who mm-hmm. actually I picked up an Uber a, a year prior, and he was a coach at Rice. Then he went to BYU. So I followed the team because he was my friend. So when he left, when he left BYU, I said, okay, I, you know, I just didn't, I'm, you know, quit following the team. So one day, this was when George Floyd was murdered. BYU did a social justice video. This young man had a white mom who had drug, mental health, and substance abuse issues. Uh, And his dad was black, nowhere to be found. He was adopted by a Polynesian mom and a Samoan dad. That's a lot of culture. Mm -hmm. His dad is one of the the coaches at BYU. And the reason why I bring in the race is because... When he when they did the social justice video um, and started talking, of course, Brick, uh, Utah is extremely white, very conservative, mm-hmm. Mormon state, very religious. So the fans started jumping all over him, like you know, just rabbit fans, just saying, "Hey, y'all need to stick to football, be quiet, whatever." He tweeted something, and he did not say, "I'm suicidal." I'm in crisis. He just tweeted something. I knew something was wrong. Remember I told you about that spider sense? Right. When you take that QPR, suicide prevention training, mm-hmm. you get that spider sense. And, and you I did not even I, know him. You did not even know him. Know him. He was a total stranger. Didn't know him from Adam. So when I uh, I saw that tweet, I said, something's wrong. I just had this overwhelming feeling that something was wrong. And I reached out to him in his DM on Twitter. And I said, hey, young man, are you all right? So I didn't hear anything for hours. And, you know, they're two hours behind us because I'm on Central. I mean, I'm on um, the East Coast. I mean, the East Coast and he's out in the mountains. So, I, you know, he didn't respond for hours. Mm-hmm. So later on that night, I was asleep and he sent me a message and he said, yes, ma'am, I'm fine. Thank you. When I train people in QPR suicide prevention training, I tell you, if you feel like someone's suicidal, you ask them that question straight out. So I asked him straight out after he told me he was okay. I said, are you suicidal? He disappeared for two weeks. But the next thing I teach people in training is be persistent. If you feel like that person is going to hurt themselves, you be persistent. So that's what I did for two weeks. I kept sending them messages and then DM, are you all right? Are you okay? I can help you. I'm a survivor. Let me help you. And two weeks later, he came back and he said, well, can I ask you something? And I said, yes. He said that my parents put you up to this. And I said, no, I don't know your parents. And at the time I didn't. He said, did the coach put you up to it? And I said, no, I knew you were in trouble. He said, well, I could use your help. He said, I'm dealing with depression and anxiety. So we started talking offline and he told me two weeks before I reached out to him, he was going to kill himself. Oh my. Yeah. So I got to him in time and was able to uh, help him. But this is something I want to say too. I helped him. And at the end of the day, I can't care more about people's mental health than they do. Once I help you and give you the tools to help yourself, you have to put in the work. If you don't want to put in the work, it's not. it might get better for a little bit, but with depression and anxiety, it's like a volcano in our bodies. It can lay dormant for a while. Anything can trigger it where it can erupt. And if you don't have those good coping skills, mm-hmm. if you don't have those uh, skills in your toolbox, what I need to help me when I'm having a bad day or that depression starts kicking my butt, it's very easy to go back down that path. Now, I helped this young man, but he's still not putting in the work. He still feels like his mental health is not as bad as it is, and it is. So, again, I help people. I I love helping people, but I always tell people, you have to put in the work because if you don't take care of your mental health, it's not going to take care of you. I don't care if you're a star student, star athlete, a professional athlete. If you don't take care of it, it's definitely not going to take care of you. But I was very grateful that I was able to step in and stop him from, from taking his own life.
Fonda, you are an absolute whirlwind, and you are an exceptional person. We've got to have you on the show again real soon. Before I let you go, I want to remind everybody that you are on the board, the state board of NAMI, and you're also a volunteer with lots of mental health organizations. You're a certified mental health first aid instructor, a suicide prevention instructor. Can you talk about where people might find out more information online, or is there an email address where they might even reach you? Yes, anyone can reach out to me. My information's all out there, and I don't mind it if I can help someone. Uh, you can reach out to me um, on Facebook under Fonda Bryant. You can reach out to me under Twitter and Twitter and Instagram, ProudMom72. And if you'd like to email me, you can email me at Fonda, F-O-N-D-A, N-C, underscore, the number 40, at yahoo.com. I also have my own nonprofit called mm-hmm. wellnessactionrecovery.org. You can reach out to me there. And, Chris, can I give one little shout-out to somebody with the Dallas Cowboys who I'm very proud of? Sure. Randy Gregory. Yes. I want to give him a shout-out. Everybody's so proud of him. I am so proud of him because let me tell you something. He has been knocked down. He will get up and make it to 40 paces and get back knocked down 50. And the thing I love about him most is how he picks himself up. He doesn't give yes. up. And that's what we have to do. We're going to fall down. We're, you know, whether mm-hmm. we do drugs, alcohol or not, we're going to have those days where we get knocked down 20 paces. But it's all in how we get back up and move forward. So exactly. I'm very proud of Randy Gregory. If I could see him, I'd give him a hug. Matter of fact, I did send him and Michael Gallup. One of my green wristbands, I never heard back from him. But I just want Randy Gregory to know that he's not alone. I'm very proud of him, and I'm definitely rooting for him to continue to take care of his mental health and have a great season. I will personally tell him that for you. All right? How about that? Fonda, we will have you on again real soon, and thanks again. And thanks again for, for QPR. Tell everybody what QPR stands for. QPR stands for Question, Persuade, Refer suicide prevention training and if anyone would like to take the training my next class is saturday saturday september 25th from one o'clock to three o'clock p.m no sign up no sign up just get on and be on time so for central time that would be what 12 to 2 Mm -hmm. yeah so anyone can take the training it's free of charge and i urge everyone to take the training because you never know who you might come across who needs your help all right thank you fonda Thank you. And joining us right now, Lieutenant Leroy Quick, third watch commander with the DPD and former gang leader Lamont Levels, who's now a community liaison with the Dallas Police Department. Gentlemen, hey, Leroy, how you doing, buddy? What's the latest and the greatest going on with the DPD? Well, uh, pretty much um, what, what DPD is trying to do, not only fight crime, but we're also trying to be proactive in the community, being a spearhead, actually. Right. With a spear, actually actually doing programming from DPD, okay? And uh, and what we're trying to do is go out to the people. We, we want to engage with the people, so we actually go in the community and we engage with the community. Because let's face it, a lot of people who come to your town hall meetings or your crime watch meetings are the folks who, you know, are, you know, probably your older folks. Yes. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to hit that, uh, younger age uh, and, and trying to reach those, those those folks as well. You know what? I enjoyed the fact that you have these different projects, not only um, in different park and recreation centers, but you've come up with a program where you, you're reaching out to people in the barbershops. Yes. Uh, it's actually called it's Barbershop Talk Getting Faded with 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, myself and Officer Tony Edmonds, he's, he's the one who actually came up with it because uh, he had a couple friends in Atlanta and in Memphis, uh, and that uh, barbershop talk in Memphis called Clippers and Cops. So what we did was pretty much just piggybacking, piggybacking off of what they're doing because I think that's a tool that we can utilize to really reach the community. Uh, matter of fact, we did a barbershop talk at Kings of Cuts. Mm-hmm. And pretty much what we talk about is uh, we talk about a variety of different um, uh, topics, such as Cleveland Browns going to the Super Bowl this year. To, Stop. To... Uh, <laughs> to uh, <laughs> To uh, you know, uh, police issues. Why did DPS come to South Dallas, or mm-hmm. why do officers do what they do on traffic stops? And so we get a lot of 
lot of uh, good dialogue. And what we're trying to do is be transparent with the community. We're trying to be transparent with the folks that we're talking to in the barbershops. Uh, typically, we, we come down, we're dressed down in regular clothes. Mm-hmm. Of course, i got a couple other officers who are in uniform. But what, what, what's so un- unique about this is is that we let the owners know that we're coming, but their clientele doesn't know. So we just pop up and then we start talking. Right. Um, In other words, it's like it's like guess what? We're here and we're regular people too. Exactly. Exactly. Because we're trying to show a humanistic side of a police officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and through our talks, we get different resources. Like this one brother, he's from Rockwall, and he was at King of Cuts, and we, and we were having our daily uh, conversations. And he said, "You know what? I want to do something for the kids in South Dallas." What can I do? I own a, I own a jujitsu dojo in mm-hmm. Rockwell, and so and so what he's done now. We, we finally got it all everything ironed out. As a matter of fact, uh, we started two weeks ago, where he brings all his instructors, instructors, and MMA fighters as well, oh, and they good. come to XI Rec Center twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays to teach the kids jujitsu. But not only are they teaching jujitsu, but they're also teaching them uh, anti-bullying bullying program mm-hmm. and mentoring programs as well. And so those are some of the resources that we get from Barbershop Talk. We're just trying to bring everybody together as one to try to reach a common common goal. What's been some of the reaction? Uh, surprise? Or let me get out of here? Or uh, no, engagement? No. Actually, 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 as a matter of fact, you need to come to one. I will. Actually, it's been positive. I mean... Even some of the uh, some gang members were up in there, and, mm-hmm. and and they actually stayed and talked. And you know, I mean, a lot a lot of times, a lot of individuals talking about, well, uh, we got a complaint. Who do we go to, and do they really listen to us? And my response is, Chief Garcia, when he first became chief of police in Dallas, he came to every police station, and the first thing he said is that. He's going to hold his officers accountable, mm-hmm. and, and not only that, he wants his supervisors to hold them hold the officers accountable. Because if not, he's going to hold the supervisors accountable. So uh, he, he's he's re- he's really strong in trying to um, and to ensure that the officers do what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, matter of fact, uh, we have an able program that was uh, implemented. Mm-hmm. And what that is, is that all the officers in DPD, we, we got to go through classes. And what those classes, is, it's like an ethics class type deal. Mm-hmm. But it's also, it also teaches the officer, so if they see something that's wrong, that another officer did, he or she needs to report that. And they've been doing that as well. So, um, so, 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 so those are some of the things that we're doing. That is fantastic. Like I said, I've been knowing you for years and years and years and have worked with you on a few projects, including I remember this this one time a couple of years ago, you asked me to visit with you and the Dallas gang unit to talk to some kids. And I, and you have former gang members there as well to talk some, to some kids that were being recruited. Actually, these were the football players uh, that were being recruited by gangs. And can you mm-hmm. talk about some of those things? Cause I thought that was an amazing process. We were sitting there in the library with all these football players who had no idea why they were going to the library until they found out. And then you had former gang members telling them, don't do this. Right. And I believe that was at Carter high school, I believe. And uh, it was Madison. It was Madison. I'll never Ma- forget Madison it. high school. Yeah. Madison high school. And, um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, a lot of kids who got the opportunity to excel in sports or academic or academics, sometimes the gang members try to uh, recruit them, but at the same time, they also try to boost them up to keep them out of trouble as well. Mm-hmm. But what we're trying to do is just keep them away from that whole atmosphere. Because right. if they're hanging out with them or doing something and they may be totally innocent and, uh, uh, they can get caught up in a drive-by. They can get caught up in getting jacked or what have you. And so, what we try to do uh, is, is, is to talk to kids, you know, not just athletes, but all the kids, and, and trying to uh, deter them from from joining gangs. And, and and that's one of the initiatives that we try to do. We try to be proactive, you know, searching out schools, searching out uh, uh, individuals who may be prone to uh, being recruited by gangs. Let's talk about you for a second. How long you've been a police officer? What got you on the force? Because again, not every police officer is bad. A lot of them are good, and it's hard for you know the the general public unless they get to know you 
to know who's on their sides. Right. Uh, I've been on Dallas Police Department, oh my goodness, 30 years now. Mm-hmm. Time so, flies. Uh, I, started re- I started real young. Of course, I'm from uh, Toledo, Ohio. That's why I'm a, I'm a big-time Browns fan. Mm-hmm. But um, We're not going to hold that against you this time. <laughs> <laughs> but but, uh, but I, I joined the Army, and I was stationed at Fort Hood, so that's how I ended up being in Dallas once I got out, once I was, uh, got out of the Army. But I, I've always wanted to be a police officer, FBI agent, DEA agent, or something, because I've always wanted to try to give back to the community and actually uh, uh, uphold the oath that we take. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of officers say, okay, I want to be a complete police officer. I want to uh, protect and serve. But some of them is just a job. To me, I, t- I, t- I try to take to a to another level. And, um, and, and, and that's why at Southeast, <clears throat> I hold my officers accountable for what they do and ensure that they, when, when they go out in the community, to try to represent the Dallas Police Department as positively as, pos- as, pos- positively as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and we're, we're trying to change that narrative. That, that's why we're doing these initiatives like barbershop talk and you know going to the schools and talking to the kids because, of course, the police department across the nation uh, get, get, get a bad rap. Because, you know, let's face it, to me, I believe 85, 90% of police officers are good. You have that 10 to 15% that makes everybody look bad. Mm-hmm. And that's the same, t- that's the same way in the communities. You yeah. got about 90% people in, in the community, South Dallas, Oak Cliff, North Dallas, wherever. You got that 10% that makes the rest of the community looks bad. Right. And, that, and, and that's why we need to come together and try to change the narrative on both parts. Now, you mentioned the community. Let's talk to your buddy who's joining us right now, Lamont Levels. He's the community liaison with the Dallas Police Department. Lamont, how you doing, man? I appreciate you joining us. Can you talk about the, some of the things that uh, Officer Quigg did not mention about some of the reach-out programs that the DPD is doing with the community? Well, first of all, I'd thank you just for allowing me to be on your platform. Oh, for uh, sure. It was some things that he, I was listening to that he said, and you, I was— like far as bringing these certain outreach programs into the schools, I think it helps because we look at the fact that, you know, a lot of these athletes probably do have an avenue out. Mm-hmm. But I'm here to tell you that a lot of athletes don't even have the avenue. You might have one or two star players on the team that these gang members might, you know, get behind and push to keep doing everything. But what about the other nine, ten players or what about the other 20-some players on the football team that the gang members don't get behind Mm -hmm. because they don't look at, probably look like they could be star potential. So I think that sports is a way to lure kids off the streets, but sports is still not the avenue to keep your kid from joining gangs and things of that nature. Exactly. Um, We talked about the barbershop programs. Can you talk about a couple of other things? I I remember I did some functions with uh, DPD uh, in in some parks and recreation like areas. You know, I think you've you've thrown some cookouts. You've had some things where where the kids were. In other words, you're working with the kids all from the young, young age all the way up so that they have there's a relationship there. They're just not seeing the police come by in a police car. And that's the key right there because engagement. Mm -hmm. I've been speaking this. I've been doing activist work for the last 20 years. I don't work with Chief Brown, Chief Hall, Chief um, Conkle. I work with all of them. And the main thing that I try to install into them, hey, get back to engagement. Yes. Because I remember when the police officers used to come through and they would engage with us and they would build a report, even if it was just passing out football cards, basketball cards, they would build a report. Now they got to know people. They got to know names. Mm-hmm. They got to know everything about you, where you be and all that. And I think we got away from that because when you, when you get to know gang member names and and things about them, now you could go out into the field and you could go to their house and you could pull up and you could talk to a parent or you could say, Hey, come here, let me talk to you. And they'll sit down and talk to you. And that makes them more reluctant to go out and act upon anything. Believe me, I know because when Quig ran into me 20 some years ago, Mm -hmm. they was engaging, even though, People, we might look at it as harassment. They might look at it as intelligence, but they was engaging. And they deterred us from going out and being in the streets and being active. So because a lot of things we didn't, you know, we didn't want to, we knew that they knew who we were. Exactly. 
You know, exactly. So they knew your family. We got to get. They knew to. you knew they knew your family. Right, right. There you go. It's just like with Officer Norman Smith before he passed. There was one guy I remember that Norm was engaging with, and when Norm passed, the guy was really hurt because mm-hmm. he seen an officer get killed in the line of duty. And this uh, one officer always engaged with him. I always stopped and say, "Man, how you doing? Are you doing good?" Do it. So it got it, it made this man have respect for an officer. So now he wanted to uplift that. He said, "Man, I don't even want to get in trouble. It ain't the fact that I'm scared of this officer. It's the fact that now that I have a relationship and I respect him. Exactly. Because it looks like you care. So I think that's one of the keys that all our chiefs need to understand. Engagement is is." One it's of the huge. Have. It's huge. There's a role to be played because not all of the police are bad people. Well, it started back years ago with me being a gang member, me being a gang founder, founding one of the first blood gangs, well, the first blood gang in Dallas County, mm-hmm. and that's 415 Bloods. Mm-hmm. And Quig's unit was started to shut down my gang. So that's how we first had our run-in. I used to have my run-ins with him. He would come out and do the gang intelligence and put us, document us down and things of that nature. And then one day, to make a long story short, he came and he picked up my brother and he took my brother down to Capius and ran his name for once and everything. And in the process, you know, he asked my brother when everything came back that clear, he said, what are you doing? I have a job for you. Come speak to the kids over here at a boot camp. So my brother went, and then my incident happened, me getting shot. Yeah. I was sitting at home. My brother wanted me to come speak to the kids just to get out. So I went and spoke to the kids one day. It made me feel so good inside because all the kids had related to me, and they was crying and after then, the kids just started asking for me. They started requesting me to speak with them one-on-ones. And Quig was like, hey, why don't you do more of this? Let's go into some schools. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing it for 20 years. And I do it free of choice, by, you know, volunteering. Sure. You know, just because I feel like I took away from society. I got to give back so much, you know. And you know, uh, what you happened know- with me was. Go ahead, Lamont. I, I gotta say this. I gotta say this, Lamont. I remember when I met you at Madison High School. Your story is just so compelling. Right. So go right ahead. Right. When I was in this gang, you know, for some years had passed, and I was going to do a drug deal with another members of my gang, and we went in. I went in looking at the world. The last thing I seen was a gun pointed in my face, and boom, I was shot in the head instantly. I was left for dead by my friends. Uh, I end up coming to, finding my way out the house. And that's really when my life really just changed, January the 2nd, 2001. Because all those things that I had took advantage of, of like life and family and friends, uh, you know, it flashed before my eyes. And, you know, then things started happening to me. Like, it really woke me up. Even though God had left me blinded for the rest of my life, mm-hmm. I tell people I see more now than I ever seen. So he really, he took my sight, but he opened my vision. And it, it really showed me what life is really about, who your friends are. And from that day on, i just been giving back, man, trying to use my story to change any kid life that I could change. Well, you really have left an impact. And again, I love your story because it's so real. And not only because it's real, because I look at the eyes of these kids who respect you and they're listening to your story and you're telling about how in your gang, when you got shot, you're in the hospital, but the only ones that came to see you were the girls. Right. And that's what I try to teach them. I try to teach them that they're not going to be there for you when you're going through it. They're not going to write you when Mm -hmm. you add on to our penitentiary populations. They're not going to bring your flowers when you're dead and gone. They're not going to take care of your kids and make sure they are right when you're dead and gone. So it's just a lot of things that I don't understand why our young kids today just believe that, you know, their friends are really going to be there. Our gang is going to be there for them, you know. So that's my main objective, to get out there and just make sure every kid here. And, and it's really well needed now with all the crime, all the shootings, all the deaths that are escalating throughout Dallas County right now. Man, I'm so glad you joined us this morning. We've got to have you back on the show real, real soon, with or without Quig. That's our guy, but who with or without him, because I think your message is so strong. Thanks, well, Lamont. Anytime, anytime, just let me know. You know it. Let and me I hear. I appreciate you. you. I appreciate you too.
But is there any information you want to pass along to the public where they can reach out to either you or tell people what you got coming up next where they might be able to meet up with you? And if they want to reach me by email, it's Leroy.Quig at DallasCityHall.com. And I will keep you up to date on everything um, uh, that we're doing. Can I say this one, one thing real quick, Chris? Sure. Uh, the violent interrupters, uh, which uh, Lamont has uh, touched on uh, a little bit, being that meeting in between the police and, and the community, mm-hmm. that's that, that's something that the city of Dallas has uh, implemented. And, uh, and, and, that, and that's another area where we're really trying to reach out and trying to do something. So, so when a shooting happens, let's say in an apartment complex or whatever, the violent interrupters will go there and they will try ease the tensions and find out what what family needs help. And then uh, once that crime scene has left and, uh, and, and once that situation has, has calmed down, then they're going to go into that particular apartment complex or community and do community engagements, trying to give them different resources and different resources that that uh, particular family might need. Yes. So that's what the violent interrupters doing, and it's awesome. It's an awesome uh, uh, program. Yes, it is, and there's a role to be played, and I appreciate them, and we appreciate you. I appreciate you too, Chris. All right, Quick, and thanks again for listening to Better Living. I'm Chris Arnold. Be sure to tune in next week as we highlight other organizations and events happening right here in Dallas-Fort Worth. So long, everybody. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. Got clock at four. Doncic. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to tunein.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 